and welcome to Sign of the Crime. This is Remy Ramirez. This is Q McGrath reporting from the 10th level of hell where it is in fact snowing today. Well, snow isn't hell. It's that it's fucking negative two where you are. I'm just saying that it's snowed over in hell. So let me just, you know, let me clarify. Snow is hell. <laughs> That's I don't actually, no. actually, it's not even snowing today. I don't mind no. snow. No. Um, but like negative anything no. is problematic. Look in my perspective. Snow is hell. Negative temperatures are hell. Anything that isn't summer and like the latter part okay, of well, spring. That's you're taking it too far. Also hell. I don't mind. I don't mind cold weather. But I actually like Michael and I had to dissect this down to its roots because he was like, "You don't mind cold weather. You just don't want to go out it." And I was like, "Yes, precisely." I was like, "That is yes, in fact, correct." I want a warm fire. I want to bake apple pies. I want to put on movies. I want to watch snow from the inside. You know what I'm saying? Like no. I feel like snow and cold weather is fine from the inside. I do not know. You should just I, okay. My thing is, you should not be expected to go outside in the cold. And the fact that people expect me. To to do things like bring my children to school early in the morning on days when it's cold is rude and untoward and I shouldn't be expected to do it and I don't think school should start till 11 particularly when it's cold that's true I, you know that's actually true that's how I feel about that nothing should start till in fact nothing nothing should start till noon that's really what I think do you remember when you were in Spain and you would like and when I talked to you about it, you were like, nothing fucking opens. <laughs> like I go out at like noon and everything was closed for siesta from like twelve to three, well, including the bank. Here's what was fucked up about that. So in Spain, and this it's been twenty years since I lived in Spain, but in Spain when I lived there, things would be open from nine to like one, one like nine to one, and that was it. <laughs> yeah that was it yeah so for yeah for me i was out partying till 7 a.m and then i would wake up at noon and by like 1 15 i'd finally fucking show up at the bank and they're like we're closed and also we smoke cigarettes in here <laughs> and we don't wear uniforms so everyone fuck off we're going to siesta and then we're gonna eat a massive lunch and i was like but i need money and they were like bye they're like uh, sounds like a you problem they were like Adios. How do you say sounds like a you problem in Spanish? El problema es tuyo. That's And how do you say it with the accent that you kept telling me that everybody in Spain had? Well, for me, it would be the same, but they, because they, they pronounce the C's like some of the C's, not all of the C's, some of the C's they pronounce like TH, but there weren't any C's in there. That, but what I just said was the, it's your problem. That I don't, yeah, which is basically the meaning behind that. Yeah. It's just sassier. Yeah. You know, it's basically, it's the South version of that is bless your heart. You know, everybody's got a way of saying like, oh, don't give a fuck. Listen, I want to talk about my cat. I want to talk. Oh, okay. About, you know, okay. Well, pull up a chair, honey. You know, I'm always here to talk. I want to talk cats. about my cat peeing on the tiles and instead of oh, in the litter no. box. I want to talk about how my cat positions his little ween in such a way on the side out the side of the litter box that it that the pee gets everywhere in the laundry room on the tile is this purposeful i'm starting to feel like is it's, this a vendetta i'm thinking yes he is an aries oh yeah that's right i forgot he's an aries he's, cat yeah and so he get when he gets mad he's like uh so, something has to happen here something bad <laughs> <laughs> mine's a cancer so when he gets mad he's like i'm not talking to you oh yeah yeah totally no yeah. rick moranis will straight up like uh 
attack you. That's one of his favorite things. I was going to say just murder. Yeah. Mother, may I murder? Yeah. He will attack you or he'll now apparently piss on the floor. And I, the first time it happened, I was like, cool. I just need to get some, you know, pine salt and scrub this and they'll be fine. No. Mm -mm. And instead it made it just the enzymes. It smelled worse. It just smelled like like pine salt pee. Yes. It was so gross. Yeah. I had to buy this like $20 bottle and I was like on tile. Really? Yeah. And the answer is I could have told you that because of kids. Yeah. Yeah. It's really gross. Yeah. Well, when we first got Clover, he's, he has a, I mean, we haven't had any litter box issues other than the fact that he would far prefer to go outside. But again, we're dealing with negative temperatures right now. So like I open the door and he literally winces when he gets close to it. And I was like, did we learn our lesson for today? (laughs) Um, But he didn't like when we first got him, I keep uh, several, I have several basil plants and they're all named. Um, And then I had a pepper plant that was Michael. wait, Wait, the pepper plant is named Michael? No, no, no. The pepper plant was Michael's plant. Wait, and so I didn't name it because are... I didn't feel attached to it. But the basil plants are are mine and I named them. What were the basil plants names? They still exist. So please refer to them in the <laughs> in the present tense. And their names are Clementine, Tabitha and Georgia. Oh, and then the pepper plants. Just well, like, it's it's Clementine. I, I'm sorry. Clementine and Tabitha are the basil plants. And then I have one rosemary plant named Georgia. Aww. And this was an argument because Michael said I should name it Rosemary, but I said that was a little too on the nose. Yeah. But anyway, so we we had a pepper plant uh, and then Clover, for some reason, didn't take to it. And so he pissed in it. He pissed. <laughs> he, just in- kept, he, he kept pissing in the plant until it died. <gasps> yeah. He was, he like, was like, no. He was like, jalapeno. Jalapeno. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. He was not down with that plant. He just didn't, I don't know why. And like, I was, my thing was like, if you pee in one of my, you know, in my rosemary plant or my basil plant, we're going to have a come to Jesus about that. But he never did that. He respected my, you know. He, he respects you. He does not respect Michael. It turns out. (laughs) He does not respect Michael at all, even a little bit, which is funny because Michael likes him. Michael's never been, you know, yeah, never mean but, Clover. But Michael is gone a lot and you are the constant. So yeah, he, that's true. He probably is like, I am the man of this house. It's- yeah. He's like, oh, is this your plan? <laughs> Piss. <laughs> oh, how do you feel about that? Piss. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? I have no idea why he did it. He did not want like that plant and he just pissed all over it. And eventually it it didn't make it. Oh, so. that is death by piss. That's so sad. Death, death by cat piss. <laughs> wow. There Truly, are some terrible ways to go. That's up there. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Speaking of piss, do you want to tell me about... Uh, this piss poor piece of shit? Yeah. 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 So um, just real quick, what I didn't even look it up. What's his sign? He's Pisces. Of course he's a Pisces. Okay. Well, okay. That makes more sense. Um. I don't know what you know about this case. It's fucking crazy and it's going to turn your head inside out. So be prepared for that shit. Tell me so, everything. Okay. It's May 1985. As we have discussed, the best decade. Um, but we're in Fayetteville, North Carolina. So, Boo. you know, I, yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's great. Probably not. Um, Katie Eastburn is looking to rehome her dog, Dixie, because her husband, Gary Eastburn, who is a captain in the United States Air Force, was anticipating being transferred to Europe. That sounds pretty cool, actually. Um, But the family's not allowed to bring the dog. Uh, 
So Katie puts an ad in the local paper searching for a responsible and loving home for their dog. And she gets this pretty quick response from a local guy, uh, a staff sergeant named Timothy Hennis. So they're pretty close to Fort Bragg. Um, So, you know, it's there's a lot of military around there. He offers to drop by and meet Dixie, see if the pair are a good match. And Katie sets up an appointment for just a few days later. And before I tell you the rest of this, I want to be clear, we're not victim blaming. Uh, But I do want to throw out that it's the 80s. As we all know, it's a different time, different set of standards for safety. Remy and I know this in particular. We were out on our bikes. Well, (laughs) no, but even now, I mean, I've put shit on Craigslist and have people come over and buy stuff for me. Um, you have roommates. Also, don't do that. I'm so. just saying, <laughs> I, I'm just saying, like, that is a common thing. And, and yeah, I mean, it's maybe go outside instead of ever having them come inside. But also, like, with Craigslist, people do that shit all the time. You're probably right. Yeah. But I, I will say how, I mean, I'm in a, I'm in a similar situation to her and I, I wouldn't have done what she did, but I watch a lot of Dateline and I don't think Dateline existed in 1985, but also in the eighties, we were doing shit. Everybody was doing shit. That was just like, what, what, this is a problem. I mean, you remember we used to go to that fucking Creek yes. that was like, <laughs> what? Like, nobody knew where we were. We just a mile and a half from our house that was between like, we had to go between two boards that were behind someone's house. If we died in that Creek, they wouldn't find us for weeks. Yeah. I mean, th- we did that all the time just on our bikes all the time in a creek where all the time oh no adults any idea definitely found condoms down there definitely found like the remnants of various drug paraphernalia didn't know what that was was just like bridge to terabithia you (laughs) know like doing our thing anyway so katie arranges for tim to come to her home to meet dixie it's not unusual for the time this is this is pretty common i i i will say that i'm hoping in this day and age people know if you are in her situation it makes more sense uh to meet like at a local park you know someplace that's not your home someplace very open and public but in katie's case that's that's not what happened um and there is this extra level of concern because katie's husband gary was not currently at home uh, Captain Eastburn frequently trained at an Air Force captain in training school. I didn't know that was a thing, but it is. And that school was in Alabama. So she was home alone with her three young daughters, three-year-old Aaron, five-year-old Kara or Kara, and baby Jana, who wasn't quite two. So that put her in an especially vulnerable position. But it's the 80s. And as I said, no Dateline, no true crime podcast. So nobody was thinking about that shit. Um, so it's about 9 p.m. on Monday, May 7th, 1985. Tim Hennis shows up at the Eastburn home, ostensibly in the hopes of adopting Dixie. He tells Katie that he and his wife, Angela, uh, love dogs, and they already have a small mixed breed dog that they call Snowball. Um, but Snowball was demonstrating a dangerous amount of jealousy towards their newborn daughter. So they are feeling like they need to get a dog that would be more safe around their new addition. That probably made katie feel safe to a man who has a daughter and is married totally. um, so yeah so dixie and tim seem to hit it off katie's relieved that she's seemingly found this perfect home for her beloved pet and before tim leaves with dixie in his hands he asks to use the restroom uh which katie obliges she allows him to do that and then he, he leashes up the dog and he leaves thanks katie it's seemingly a happy and simple transaction So according to Gary Eastburn's retold account, as per his wife, quick, easy, in no way suspicious. 
both Katie and Gary were very relieved that Dixie would be going to a fellow soldier because they felt that that made him particularly trustworthy. Mm. So we don't know for sure what day the attack on Katie Eastburn and her daughters occurred. But we do know that as of Thursday, May 9th, Katie stops running her normal errands and the paper, the daily paper, begins piling up on her door. By Sunday the 12th, neighbors have noticed these papers piling up and her husband's concerned that Katie hasn't answered their weekly Thursday evening call. And he's continuing to call um, since Thursday and just the, you know, the phone's not being answered. So he's getting frantic. Meanwhile, the Eastburn's neighbors decide that since the car hasn't moved, none of the children have been seen and these mounting piles of paper and mail, this is concerning enough that they are like, we're just going to check in. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I probably would have done that earlier, but okay. So, um, uh, let's see. Army Sergeant. So everyone here is military, by the way. Army Sergeant Bob Seafeld and his wife ring the doorbell. These are the neighbors of the Eastburn home on the evening of May 12th. Uh, and that happens to be Mother's Day. And the only response I know, the only response they get are the frantic cries of baby <gasps> Janet echoing throughout the house. So that's enough to to set the seafolds off. And they call the Eastburn family babysitter, Julie, who immediately drives out there. And she peeks through the window where she knows Jana's room is. And she sees Jana standing in her crib and crying. Jana sees Julie and instinctively reaches out her arms to her. And at that point, both Julie and the seafolds decide that it's time to call the police. So the cops arrive pretty soon after. They know the kids are involved. They take a quick look around and they decide that they're going to get in this house by force. Um, and there's an absolute horror awaiting them. So officer William Toman arrived first and his most urgent concern was baby Jana. So he forces open a window to rescue the frantic infant and he hands the baby to the Seafelts with the intru- and the instructions to provide immediate care. Jana is covered in several days worth of her own urine and feces. Oh. Her teeth are black and she's severely dehydrated oh. hours away from death. Oh, my God. Officer Toman smelled something terrible in the Eastburn home, and he grimly tells Bob Seafelt to take baby Jana to his home while he searched for the source of the smell he strongly suspects is decomposition. A cursory search by Officer Toman reveals the dead bodies of Katie and her three-year-old daughter, Erin. So he ba- he calls back up. A more thorough investigation of the house exposed a a pretty grisly scene. Um, A pair of women's sneakers with the laces still tied were discovered in the living room near the couch, as well as a pair of women's underwear sliced in half. (gasps) In the hall leading to the master bedroom, police find five-year-old Erin stretched out on the floor by the bed, her throat severed. (gasps) On the opposite side of bed is Katie, her mother. Her shirt and her bra pulled apart to expose her breasts, naked from the waist down, hands tied behind her back throat severed with multiple stab wounds to her face and chest three-year-old Kara is discovered in her bed seemingly hiding under her favorite star wars blanket also dead from a cut throat and multiple stab wounds so it's clear that this is a homicide and consequently a very difficult call had to be made to staff sergeant gary eastburn Initially, Gary is relieved when he's told that he has a phone call because he assumes it's his wife and that her inexplicable absence is about to be explained. When a fellow officer gravely informs him that it's not Katie, but a detective, Gary blurts out how many of them are dead. Oh, God. So that's fucking rough. Um, But no one will tell him exactly what happened, partly because 
he's immediately a suspect just by virtue of being her husband and partly because he's hours away from the crime scene. So they decide it's better to give him the full, the full details where he could be both observed by police and supported by family. It didn't take long for police to conclude that Gary was not involved in the murder of his wife and daughters. Um, There are police officers who claimed that his sobs on hearing the news haunted them for years following this case. Additionally, he was nowhere near the scene of the crime at the time of the murders, and there's zero evidence that he'd conspired with anyone else. So Gary Eastburn was pretty quickly crossed off the list of suspects. And that should have been a good thing, but the police didn't really have much more to go on. So it's the 80s. DNA evidence is years away from being a significant factor in crime solving. There's really only old-fashioned legwork to go on. And they interview the babysitter, and that unearthed some strange shit. So Julie uh, was in regular contact with Jeffrey McDonald. Do you know who that is? No. Yeah. Um, okay. So Jeffrey McDonald, this is a pretty famous case. He was a man who had been convicted for the murder of his wife and children in the Fort Bragg area, uh, part of North Carolina, a very similar crime to the Eastburn murders. That case is that case is batshit. Um And I'm not going to go into it too much, but he basically claimed that a bunch of hippies came into his house and killed his wife and children. So uh, he was found guilty. Uh, I, I haven't, it, it's, it's a whole thing. Um, His, his account is very strange, but strange things happen. So, you know, Uh, Julie's relationship with Jeffrey has the whiff of romance to it. Like she's been writing him in prison and it sort of feels like Julie at least yeah julie yeah get it the fuck together girl some girls love a red flag you know what i mean Uh, for real (laughs) Some girls love a red flag so whether or not that's true whether or not there's any romance to their relationship she swears up and down that mcdonald is innocent and it's entirely possible that whoever committed the mcdonald murders could also be responsible for this crime the police dig into that theory but they can't find any evidence that the two murders are related Julie also admits that the Eastburns had been getting some weird crank calls uh, in the weeks before the murders, some of them sexually vulgar. And she disclosed that she had been working with local authorities to bust neighborhood drug dealers and that she thinks it's a possibility she had been followed to the Eastburn home on more than one occasion by one of these drug dealers and or their affiliates. Julie needs help, I feel like. (laughs) Julie. Julie, I mean, I'm reading this and I'm like, say what now? This is the babysitter? What? This is the babysitter. I don't know. Mm. I kind of feel like if I were Katie Eastburn, I would have wanted to know about that. I'd have been like, hey, Julie, do you have any friends who are not police informants? Yeah, really. Just just wondering. (laughs) I'm thinking maybe you should just go home. Um, Anyway, so the police look into this theory again. They can't find anything substantial. Nothing pans out. Um, They do get some pertinent information from a neighbor, however. So uh, this guy, Patrick, he's an insomniac, and he often took late night slash early morning walks when he can't sleep. And on the night that they suspect that the Eastburns were killed, which I believe was that, I think it's that Wednesday going into Thursday, um, he's out for a stroll, he says, and he sees a tall blonde guy apparently leaving from from the direction of the Eastburn house with like what looks like a garbage bag in his hand. According to the neighbor, as he passed the guy, the dude gave him a nod and says, getting an early start before throwing the bag in his car, a white Chevette and driving off. Um, The neighbor, he doesn't think anything of it until the cops come to talk to him um, following the Eastburn murders. So 
There's also evidence that Katie's ATM card was used at a local bank to take out $300 a few days after the murders. But it's the 80s, so there are no cameras posted at ATMs like there are now. Um, There's no surveillance, nothing to capture the guy's image. A woman who was waiting at the line at the time um, doesn't immediately report, but does eventually report that she saw the guy and that he was tall and blonde. At the AT- She was waiting at the ATM? She was waiting in line with him. Okay. Yeah. So the police discovered the ad that Katie had placed looking for a new home for Dixie. So they turned to the media requesting that they ask whoever had answered that ad to come talk to them. And Tim Hennis does. Uh, he sees himself, you know, on the news, basically, like they're like, hey, we're looking for this dude. So he calls in a few days later and they bring him in. And during the interview, he claims that he'd never been inside the house, that he'd only met Katie at the door, played a bit in the yard with the dog and then left. The police took his fingerprints and his blood, um, but they they didn't find anything that matched from the crime scene. So they eliminate him. But then they get the neighbor who saw a blonde man leaving the Eastburn residence to sit down with a sketch artist. And the dude that this person describes, that Patrick describes, bears a striking resemblance to Tim Hennis. So the cops pull his DMV photo and they put it in a lineup with five other photos and they show it to the woman from the ATM who was in line with the guy mm-hmm. um, who used Katie Eastburn's card to take out money. And she immediately points to Tim Hennis's photo mm-hmm. and she says, that's the guy. So the cops go back to Tim Hennis to get some more info. Uh, and it turns out that he doesn't have much of an alibi for the night of the Eastburn murders. Um, and let me tell you why. So that evening, Hennis's wife, fed up with his inability to get and keep a job and his general inability to be a good husband, left him with their 18-month-old daughter saying she was bored and tired of being broke. Tim, seemingly determined to prove that she was in fact correct about him, proceeds to drive to an ex's house, proposition her for sex, and then when he gets shot down, he says that he comes home, eats his sad dinner in front of the TV, and then goes to bed. Oh, my God. This is explaining so much about his chart. Okay, keep going. Incidentally, he also drives the same white Chevette that the neighbor claims to have seen that night. This does not look great for Tim. Tim, So he's arrested. Tim, you did it. Tim, (laughs) come on. Girl, wait till you you don't even. Okay, so he's arrested uh, based primarily on eyewitness testimony, which any lawyer will tell you is not not a great look. So Tim and his family are shocked. So they run out and they hire a very prominent local attorney and private investigators who get to work scrutinizing the police's case. Tim's Tim's family is shocked. Tim pretends to be shocked. Uh Uh-huh. Keep going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they set up a reenactment of the morning of the Eastburn murders as described by the neighbor, and they determined it would have been nearly impossible for him to see anyone leaving the victim's house clearly. A second reenactment, reenactment provoked... Uh, the neighbor, again, this guy named Patrick, to admit that he might have been mistaken about his identification of Tim Hennis. Another neighbor, a man named David, spoke to the reenactment team during the first reenactment, and he told them that he'd spoken to a white guy sporting a crew cut, driving a white van with a couple friends in the back, parked outside the Eastburn house the night of what they think when the murders happened. He also claimed to have seen that same van up for sale at the local Winn-Dixie parking lot a couple days later. Um, which honestly feels like pretty pertinent information. And I'm not sure why this guy didn't call the police. Yeah, uh, that, it just sounds like, you know, how people like want to get involved and. Oh, girl, it's just going to keep going. Oh, damn it. So, OK, so 
Then there are also issues with Lucy Cook, the woman who claimed to have seen Tim Hennis at the ATM machine, because she didn't, again, remember how I said she didn't initially tell the cops she saw anyone? Um, So they allege she only came forward after seeing Tim Hennis's picture in the media. Lucy claims that she didn't tell police what she'd seen at first because she was scared and because her husband asked her not to. And she did acknowledge to seeing Tim Hennis's pics in the media prior to identifying him in the lineup. So that's problematic. There are more issues with the police investigation, however, including hair and fingerprints found at the scene that were never identified, as well as a size nine shoe print that did not match Hennis's significantly larger size 13 shoe. So they bring in well-known forensic expert, Pa Stombaugh, uh, to examine the Eastburn house, and he finds a condom wrapper under the dresser. It's suggested, based on the knowledge of the Eastburn marriage, that most likely the presence of this condom wrapper indicates the very real possibility of consensual sex happening at some point because rapists very rarely bring along condoms. So I looked up the stats on this, um, which I, I think we should all take with a grain of salt. Uh, they vary pretty significantly between studies. I think this is probably because it's hard enough to get a man to admit that he's raped someone, much less admit to like the circumstances surrounding it and the planning that comes before it. Like it's hard enough to get a guy to be like, oh yeah, I raped her. And the thing is I brought a condom because I'm concerned about my personal health. Like, right. You know, it's, it's, I imagine it's, it's hard to get people to talk about that. Um, The general consensus is that it's between 15 and 30% of rapists that use condoms. I don't know how accurate that is, but that's what we've got. Um, I don't even actually think that that's a tiny amount, to be perfectly honest. I mean, at at the higher end, that's almost a third. Yeah. So uh, and for what it's worth, some studies found that men with something to lose, like a family or a career or a reputation, are more likely to use a condom than those who don't have those things. Especially if they're worried about her getting pregnant. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and Tim Hennis did have a wife and family. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. Anywho, um, Stamba became convinced based on his assessment of the scene that there were two assailants needed to commit these murders, which did not fit the crime theory posited by the authorities. And finally, the private investigator unearthed two more neighbors, Chuck and Sherry Ratke, who claimed that they were out at the same time as Patrick claimed to be on a walk on the night of the murders, but that they didn't see him or any blonde guy leaving the Eastburn house. They did, however, insist they saw a guy who fit that description in the neighborhood a few nights following the murders. So despite these very real inconsistencies on july 4th 1986 after only 12 hours of deliberation the jury returns a guilty verdict on one count of first degree rape and three counts of first degree murder and they sentenced tim hennis to death but the defense is not daunted so they presented evidence to the appeals court that the prosecution used unfair tactics to influence the jury, including telling the jury that someone must pay for these crimes and that basically someone um, and that the jury had the opportunity to make that happen by convicting Tim Hennis. Uh, and the appeals court bought it. The conviction was thrown out. The prosecution's not thrilled about that, but they're also not terribly worried. Wait, I don't get it. What? Why? What? Why did they get thrown out? Um, I, I can't tell you precisely what they, what was the justification. I can only tell you that the, the, uh, 
what they used, basically what their what their premise was, is that the prosecution used unfair tactics to influence the jury. What? Because they and one of those tactics was basically saying instead of saying Tim Hennis did it, make him pay. They said someone did this and you have an opportunity to make someone pay. And that person is Tim Hennis. That just seems like semantics. That just seems like I am. Yes. But all of that counts. Well, the way you say things absolutely counts in a courtroom. I'm assuming there's more to it, but that's what was that was one of the things that that qualified. Okay, fine. I just okay. I also think like unfair tactics. I'm like, that's pretty broad. Yeah. (laughs) What? I mean, I feel like the police do unfair shit all the time. Well, nothing unfair should be done. But but that just seems like he. It just seems that they do. The cops are allowed to lie to you. You know, the cops are allowed to do all kinds of shit to try and get you to, you know, reveal yourself. I So I'm like, what qualifies as unfair? I don't know. Okay. Well, anyway, I, okay. I got it. Sure. Okay. So, um, but they're not worried. They, secure, they secured a conviction once. They're pretty certain that they could do it again. So they recharge Hennis with murder. And when they come to trial the second time, they introduce, they have all the same evidence and they introduce yet another neighborhood witness claiming to have seen Tim Hennis on the night of the murders. The defense, however, was ready for them this time. One of the major downsides to having to retry uh, a case for the prosecution is the defense now knows your strategy. And for a case like this one, which relied primarily on eyewitness testimony, that can make things kind of testy. And that's really what happened here. So the defense rips apart Lucille Cook, the ATM lady, and suggests that she might have been lying about her entire testimony. Um, and they forced Patrick to admit on the stand that he had been charged with theft for using a stolen ATM card and then mysteriously avoided being brought to trial. Oh. And then a friend of Patrick's testifies that Patrick had written him a letter admitting that he didn't know who or what he saw on the night of the murders. But the might drop came when the defense was able to produce the unknown walker who had been seen walking through the neighborhood by Chuck and Sherry Ratke a few nights after the murders. And this guy... uh was a dead ringer for Tim Hennis. It didn't help that the dude, a guy named John Rapush, testified that he always wore the same black members-only jacket that they claimed to have seen Tim Hennis wearing and carried a backpack, which was very, very close to the description given by Patrick. A guy in a jacket, a tall blonde guy in a jacket. Um, He said, described it as a garbage bag, but, you know, carrying something, basically. So, given all this... Unsurprisingly, Tim Hennis is then acquitted of all charges in 1989, and he walked out of the jail and back into the life he'd had before. Following his acquittal, Tim Hennis reenlisted in the United States Army. He's promoted to the rank of staff sergeant. Uh, He saw service in Iraq during Operation Desert Storm and Somalia. He received several awards and accolades for his service. In 1998, Hennis and his family, who now have a six-year-old son named Andrew, moved to Fort Lewis, Washington. And by all accounts, he was a dedicated and loving father and husband during this time. In 2004, Hennis retires from the U.S. Army with the rank of Master Sergeant, and he found work at a local waste treatment plant. So, you know, he just went on to have a very normal life. But then in May of 2005, Captain Larry Trotter of the Cumberland County Sheriff's Office attends a detective seminar on advanced criminal intelligence techniques, which discuss the Eastburn murders specifically as a case study. 
after having a little chat with a journalist who had covered the Eastburn murder trials, Trotter learns that detectives had taken semen from Katie's body using a vaginal swab, but had never tested the swab because, you know, it's the 80s, no DNA testing, still in its infancy in the 1980s. So Trotter sees, he sets out to see if he can find the semen sample, and he does. It's still being stored. So he has the semen on the swab tested at the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation's crime lab in Raleigh. In June 2006, a forensic test determined that the sample was 1.2 quadrillion times more likely to come from Tim Hennis than literally anyone else on the planet. Trotter shares those results with Edward Granis, the Cumberland County District Attorney, um, and Robert Biddle, who had participated in the 1985 investigation. Biddle contacts Gary Eastburn, informing him of the news. Must have been infuriating. Mm. However, we have a problem. (laughs) So the Fifth Amendment's double jeopardy clause prohibits retrials after acquittals. So that's really frustrating. Tim Hennis could walk into the street and scream that he'd killed Katie Eastburn and her daughters, and the U.S. government couldn't do jack shit about it because he'd already been acquitted. However, we have a loophole. So the Uniform Code of Military Justice permits military personnel tried in a civilian court to be court-martialed and tried for the same crime in a military court so long as they were serving during the time that the crime was committed. So at the request of the Cumberland County Sheriff's Office, Lieutenant General John R. Vines, the commanding officer at Fort Bragg, agrees to call the retired Hennis back into service as a pretext for charging him with the Eastburn murders based on the new DNA evidence. So basically, they're like, we're going to call him back into service, make him think that we need him again. And then we're going to be like, gotcha. Yeah. And I wonder how that went, because I I don't I am not a military person. Maybe someone out there can answer this for me. Like, if they call you back into service, can you say no? <laughs> can you be like, you know. I'd rather not. Like, I don't know that's a, if you can do that's that. That's a good question. Probably if you're retired, you probably could. You probably could, right? Yeah, I would think. But he didn't. So on September 26, 2006, Hennis is recalled to military duty and he returns to Fort Bragg the next month. In August of 2007, Hennis is court-martialed on three counts of premeditated murder. In December of 2007, Hennis appealed this decision, arguing that the Army lacked jurisdiction. Position, uh, the petition is denied. In May of 2008, he appeals again against the court-martial decision at the United States Army Court of Criminal Appeals, and that's dismissed the next month. In September of 2008, Hennis appeals to the United States Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, but that's dismissed. In December of 2009, Hennis appeals against the court-martial at the United States District Court for the Eastern District of North Carolina, and that shit got rejected. In other words, home bitch is desperate to not have this go to trial. Mm. Yeah. How the fuck did your semen get in there, you fuck? Oh, let me tell you. So Hennis court martial at Fort Bragg begins on March 17th, 2010, and it lasts for three weeks. For the court martial, both the prosecution and the defense represent uh, are represented by service members. So the whole thing is all military. Colonel Patrick Parrish presided over the court martial proceedings while a jury panel of 14 military officers and non-commissioned personnel was convened. During the trial, the prosecution focused on the DNA evidence and included the prior eyewitness accounts as corroborating evidence. The defense team argued that the footprints, blood, and hair samples found at the crime scene did not match Hennis or the victims, so there's someone else involved and not Hennis. But in addition, 
they suggest that the crime scene evidence um uh wait no i'm sorry in addition they suggest that the crime scene evidence at the former eastburn family home in fayetteville had been contaminated in response to the dna evidence they say that hennis had consensual sex with katie before her murder wait what do they mean by contaminated like someone came in there after the fact yeah i mean i think part of what they're saying uh is that like First of all, this case is like, you know, 30 years old. So they didn't have the same they didn't have the same uh system set in place to make sure that evidence doesn't get contaminated the way they do now. Okay. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. So but, they're like basically seem- saying this evidence is really old. They're not talking about the DNA evidence. They're talking about other things. But the other things don't even point to him, so it doesn't matter. Um Yeah, but I think they're throwing everything against the wall right now to try and say like you know, there's so basically what they're saying is there's so many issues with this case. There's so many issues with that's, I think, their tactic is there's so many issues sure. with this case. We don't even know where to start. Yeah, but the real issue is that his fucking semen was in her vagina and there's no getting around that. Right. Which is why they're saying that he had consensual sex with well, her. Well, that's interesting because he never mentioned that. No, he did not mention that. And he says he did not mention that because he didn't want to hurt Gary and the surviving daughter, Jana, um, or his wife. And because uh, he knew that it would make him look guilty. Um, yeah, yeah, it would make you look guilty. Yeah, sure does. Um, but also, uh, that's really dragging her name through the mud. Yeah, also, she was raped and then your semen was found inside her, sir. So their suggestion was that that she'd had sex with him several days prior to the murder and that that his semen was still hanging out in her. I mean, her panties were sliced. That is correct. She was obviously raped as part of this attack. That is correct. Yes. And his semen was found in there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I'm um, just having a rage seizure over here. But, you know, and because I thought about, I remember the guy, um, Stamba, who says that it looked to him like it was two assailants. It felt to me like it's possible there were two assailants, um, Tim Hennis and some friend of his. And Tim Hennis didn't use a condom and his friend did. I think that's mm. entirely possible. I think it's entirely possible that his friend did. And that's why his friend isn't in jail right now. But, you know, that rapper also could have been Gary's. I I'm getting the vibe based on, you know, the very delicate way that they phrased that, that like after inquiring with Gary about their sexual practices and their marriage, that I don't think they use condoms. That's why it sounded like there wasn't a good reason for that condom rapper to be there unless you know, she was sexually active or someone used a condom during a rape. Okay. Um, I don't know that for certain. That's just the way it sounds based on uh, the way they phrased it. Sure. That said, um, it's possible that there were two assailants. It's possible that one of them used uh, a condom. It's possible that he raped her twice and that he used a condom once and he didn't use a condom the second time. It's not like they knew about I mean, you know, it could have been like he could have been one of those sick fucks who raped her, killed her and then raped her again and wasn't worried about it the second time because, you know, not going to get pregnant if you're dead. Like it might have been that he didn't plan on killing her. And then maybe the daughters got up and saw them and he killed the daughters. And then he realized, yeah, I mean, there's just so many gross possibilities here. Right. Right. Um, Okay. But anyway, what I didn't see and I looked all over um, was any evidence that that Katie Eastburn um, was cheating on her husband. 
you know, I very much feel like if they had been able to find evidence on that, they would have thrown that shit all over the place and they didn't. Yeah. And I highly doubt that with three young kids in the home, you don't even have time. She would be like, come in and let's fuck. Like, I just yeah. don't see that. And it wasn't like her husband was like deployed. He was at a training camp, you know, so yeah. he wasn't. Yeah, it it that it didn't make sense. Also, like, hey, you want to come meet my dog? And then maybe we could go fucking back real quick. Like, it's just no. sounds like every man's porn fantasy, but it's not yeah, real. It's, it's women don't. It's just like women don't do that. Women don't. I don't know. That doesn't happen. <laughs> like, no. I don't uh, You know especially women with three kids. I have two. I'm exhausted all the time. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's not real. That's in your head. So of course, you know, him saying that the sex was consensual went over like a fart in church. So following three hours of deliberation, the jury unanimously found Hennis guilty on April 3rd, 2010. Uh, He did a lot of appeals. He's been trying to appeal that. I think his last one went through in 2021. His ass is still in jail and we're all hoping that's where he stays. And that's the fucked up story of Tim Hennis and how he ended up really. It's a, you know, have you ever seen that movie reversal of fortune? It's that shit. Well, okay. Let's talk about this chart. So we don't have a birth time. Womp womp. I know. So we don't know houses or is rising is mid heaven, any of that, but there's still just so many things about this chart that are quite simply not good. Here's the first thing. Okay. Stay with me here. His mercury is at 29 degrees of Aquarius. And as we know, 29 degrees is called the anoretic degree in astrology. And it often, not always, but often marks a crisis point, right? It's a point where the placement or the planet is so close to the next sign that it becomes unstable. Like it doesn't know where it belongs. So it becomes sort of insecure, right? Or in crisis. When you have mercury at the anoretic degree, Remember, Mercury oversees thoughts and communication. So it sort of marks a place where your thoughts and your ability to communicate and connect with others gets destabilized, which can create a lot of isolation. So we have someone whose thoughts are unstable and who has trouble connecting with others (laughs) right off the bat. No. And a Pisces. Yay. (laughs) Okay, we'll get there. Okay, so that's a bummer already. Plus, then Mercury, who's already in a like shitty situation, is then being opposed by Pluto. And this mm-hmm. is a very tight opposition. Mercury is at 29 degrees of Aquarius. Pluto's at zero degrees of Virgo. So the opposition is only off by one degree. This is just not this is not the kind of like delicious astrology sandwich I long to eat. This is this is like a sandwich made out of charred tire. It's just no buens. So first let's talk about Mercury opposite Pluto. This is the cool fun thing that happens when Pluto shadow energy is opposing your thoughts. (laughs) You know, so now you have thoughts about abuse and murder and rage and rape, right? The list Mm. goes on. So that's really fucking awesome. Pluto opposite Mercury can also make you really struggle to connect with others because Mercury, as we talked about, also oversees communication and Pluto is a big old fucking bummer, just like shitting on all your communication. So there's a real 
like, as I mentioned before, there's this like isolation that happens with this setup, like a lack of knowing how to talk to others and feel included. Cause think about it. It's like, um, if you, if every time you open your mouth, a bunch of Pluto comes out, nobody wants to talk to you. Yeah. No, you know that's what I'm a saying? bummer. Yeah. So like, it's very isolating. And that's on top of the isolation that Mercury at the anoretic degree already set up for us. Okay. So that's the first thing I saw when I looked at that chart was that opposition. Timothy's son is at five degrees of Pisces. So this means that his son is also opposite Pluto. But let's just all take a minute to talk about why killers are so often Pisces, right? Because this is a thing that we know. Pisces is like the number one sign for most serial killers. There are two reasons. One, in the lore of the Zodiac, Pisces oversees the 12th house, which is literally the house where life loses physical form, dissipates back into immaterial form, aka dies, so that it can be reborn in the first house as Aries. People think of Scorpio as the sign that oversees death, and that can totally be true as well. Although I think Scorpio is more about like figurative deaths and figurative rebirths. But Pisces is literally the last stop on the train before death in the Zodiac. So that's one thing. The other thing is that Pisces is a mutable water sign. The mutable signs are Sag, Gemini, Virgo, Pisces. Those are the signs that are the most flexible and also essentially more adaptable than the other signs. And then water is already inherently mutable and flexible and adaptable because it's a liquid. So Pisces being a water sign and also a mutable sign is essentially the most mutable of all the mutable signs, which means hmm. these are people who are shapeshifters. These are people like John Wayne Gacy, who was a Pisces, who can blend in and seem normal and seem like they just want to buy your dog off of you or whatever, when actually they want to rape and murder you and your children. Not that all Pisces do this, obviously. Like one of my best friends is a Pisces and she's a goddess. But when Pisces is fucked up, it's fucked up in this particular way. Mm. The, the wolf in sheep's clothing way. The I didn't get a weird vibe from this guy at all way. Although I just want to say you probably would get a weird vibe about Timothy if you spent too much time with him because of his communication being all weird. Well, and remember, he says he, by his own admission, he had a fight with his wife, went to his ex-girlfriend's house to try and get a little nookie. And she was like, yeah, it's going to be a no from me. You know, I mean, this is a guy I can see him in that situation being like, well, guess what I'm going to do then? Exactly. Or exactly. maybe even showing up and being like, because, you know, like there are all those people who like he, it may be in his head. He created that this was a romantic encounter between him and Katie and showed up expecting maybe he could further that romantic encounter. And Katie was like, the fuck are you doing here? You know, I can see that well, happening. I can't help but wonder if when he went to the bathroom, he like unlocked a window yeah. or something. Yeah. Do you know? Because like, he didn't tell them about that initially. Remember, he said he'd never exactly. been in the house. Exactly. Exactly. Like, why would you leave that detail out? You know what I mean? Oh, I'm like, sure he was just like, oh, I forgot. I didn't think it was important. Mm. No, but I mean, really, why would you yeah. leave that detail out? Yeah. You know, really? Okay. Um. Okay. Let's go back to his son. So we're at five degrees of Pisces. With sun opposite Pluto, this is really difficult. This is someone who just straight up has a war going on inside of them, right? That war can look a lot of different ways. 
because Pluto covers a lot of shadow ground, right? It could look like someone who struggles with addiction, uh, someone who hates themselves and uses Pluto's destructive forces against the self, like maybe gets into sexually harmful situations or whatever. Because remember, the sun represents the self. So you have an opposition between the self and the shadow. Okay. When you have mm-hmm. sun opposite Pluto, does this make sense? Mm-hmm. What I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and here's the thing. Sometimes, and by sometimes, I mean, if this person isn't in therapy, then the chances are quite good. <laughs> this placement tells us that this is a person who is a danger to others. And that's because if you hate yourself or you have destructive energy focused at the self, there's a huge chance that you're going to, at some point, project that outwards onto the people around you. That's just what fucking happens. Unless you're in therapy or somehow using that Pluto energy to transform yourself, which is something that you can uh, eventually do with sun opposite Pluto, you are not going to do it at first. Hmm. You're going to struggle at first, but you can, because, because Pluto allows us to transform. It's the death rebirth energy. But if you don't ever uh, get yourself to that place where you can use Pluto energy in a helpful way, all of that destructive shadow energy that you focus on the self is going to pour out into other people. Right. Okay. So here's the other thing. And this is so, it's just like, what the fuck, dude, this chart. There's another thing in here, another aspect that we see all the time on the pod that Timothy also has. And that is sun conjunct Mercury, right? Because we see that a lot. Yeah. Mercury's over there. Yes. Over there at um, 29 degrees of Aquarius and we're at five degrees of Pisces. So they're six degrees apart. Mercury is your thoughts, like we talked about. The sun is the self. When they're conjunct, there's a good chance that you just have someone who only thinks about themselves, right? Like this is a narcissist. (laughs) And to make that even worse, he's got Pluto at zero degrees of Virgo opposing them. And that means that that Pluto is right next to Leo, like right fucking there. Pluto is the shadow And when it's got that Leo influence, you get Leo's shadow aspect, which is narcissism. So you have narcissism, Pluto influenced by Leo, opposing narcissism, sun conjunct Mercury. It's like, how is it even possible to get more narcissism out of a person? (laughs) Like a toothpaste. You just keep squeezing. Oh, just, I mean, like, yeah, the worst, the worst, the worst toothpaste. And it really explains to me. I don't know if you, did you look up his mugshot? I'm sure you did. Yes. Yeah. He, the look in his eye. Uh-huh. So cold. I mean, first of all, he's hot. Let's just say it. He, he's an attractive man. He, the look in his eye is so heartless and so smug. This is someone who is just brought in for murdering an entire family. And the look in his eye is just like, fuck you. It's like. I also like for me, I couldn't believe. Yeah, they brought him in. That was his thing. And I was like, and your excuse was like your your fucking alibi is I was hitting up my ex for sex because my wife was mad at me. And that's like and that's the look of confidence you're going in with. Like, huh? 
All right. Well, and this is the narcissism, right? Because when you're a narcissist, you don't know that everything coming out of your mouth is incriminating because you think you're smarter than everyone else and you're better than everyone else. But like the look on, he, I mean, he, first of all, I would be terrified if I had been arrested. Oh my anyway. God, shitting myself. Yeah. Second of all, if it was for this heinous, awful crime, I mean, at the very least, even if I was confident that I wasn't going to get booked for this. You'd still be pretty anxious. Yeah. Oh, I would, my, I would be, I would be losing my shit over the fact that these, these innocent humans were slaughtered. Do you know what I mean? Like, I wouldn't just be like, I wouldn't have a fuck you look in my face is basically what I'm saying. Okay. Here's the other fucked up thing. And this is now the fifth time we've seen this. And actually, I need to go back and look at a different aspect of this, which I'll talk about in a second. But, he but here it is, because we saw this with Gacy, with Bundy, with Richard Ramirez, with Joseph James D'Angelo. So this is now the fifth time. So in other words, with some of the most heinous rapists and murderers, and now with Hennis, they've all got moon conjunct the South Node. The South Node, which is the opposite of the North Node, as we know is the placement that tells us what we're meant to move away from in this lifetime, what we're meant to let go of, and the karma that we're bringing with us from past lives and from early on in our own lives, for better or for worse. So let's talk about this letting go of patterns business. For one thing, when the moon is conjunct the south node, this means that the moon wants to hang on to past tendencies that are not going to work for them in this lifetime. Also, South node conjunct the moon sets someone up to be super emotionally insecure and anxious. And what's interesting about this is that something that's common with this aspect, this conjunction, is that it kind of lends itself to people bottling up their feelings until they burst. And they're also super hard to comfort generally, which is not a good combo, right? Being really sensitive, not asking for the help you need, not accepting comfort from others, especially if you can't communicate well with others and bottling all that up until you have a meltdown, right? Like that's bad fucking news. It really sets someone up to be in dire need of therapy. So if they're not getting that, then they're really volatile, right? And the fact is he'd been rejected twice that night, Yeah. right? Yeah. Rightfully last so. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, I would be like, sir, you can leave my house immediately is what you can do. The last thing I'll say about that aspect that I think is the, is the crux of this is that the moon rules subconscious impulses. So these are the desires we carry that we don't have full consciousness around, right? So when those impulses are joined up, right, that's the moon, the impulses, subconscious impulses are joined up with bad habits from past lives and old karma that our soul is desperately trying to let go of, you get someone who has compulsive desires to do things that are going to fuck up their life path. And I think that's ultimately the most important takeaway from this conjunction, the desire to be destructive comes from below the surface of consciousness, which means it will probably feel overwhelming and inexplicable to the people who have this in their chart. They won't understand it. It's like a compulsive feeling. They'll just feel like they need to do it. By the way, 
this is what therapy is for. This is what you do in therapy. You bring the subconscious impulses into the light so that they can be examined and worked with in non-destructive ways. So again, just cannot plug therapy enough. For Hennis, that would be more the case because he's got this big, funky conjunction opposing his moon south node conjunction. So check this out. Across the way, 180 degrees away from this moon south node conjunction, he's got Jupiter conjunct the north node, obviously, conjunct Neptune. Now, this by itself could maybe be a beautiful conjunction for like a famous artist or musicians or something if you take out the whole south node thing. But unfortunately, as we've been talking about, you know, the astrology surrounding this just isn't good. So instead of having a famous musician, we have a famous murderer. So let's talk about why this conjunction is a fucking bummer. For one thing, as we know, Jupiter makes things bigger. It's just like Popeye to spinach, right? Jupiter's the spinach. It amplifies whatever it gets around and makes it even more powerful. Neptune in its shadow is about illusion and deception. So now we've got someone who's a big fat liar, big fat because Jupiter liar because Neptune, right? This is just like a master deceiver. Not only that, but with the North node involved in this conjunction, now we've got someone whose destiny and entire life path is being influenced by this big over the top deception energy. And I say deception because the South node is opposing all this ish, right? So, cause Neptune can be about art and beauty and um, healing, right? But the South node, remember, is opposing this other conjunction. And wherever, you know, there's a South node, there's a North node. So like, you can't, you can't talk about the North node without knowing the South node is on the other side of it, right? Right. So you have the South node opposite Neptune, Neptune and you have the South node opposite Jupiter as well. All those old bad habits, all that stuff you're supposed to be letting go of, it's all pushing against these planets and effing them up. Not only that, but Jupiter opposite the South node makes the South node really strong, right? That's mm. what Jupiter does. So this is a big old honking South node, like beep, beep, motherfucker. She didn't come here to play. So Jupiter's like, yay, South node, you go. And then the South node is like, don't mind if I do while I conjunct Deuter's moon and oppose his Neptune. So, huh? I like, I just keep thinking that like, maybe he showed up that night, you know, he's upset. He's in his feelings. And I, this is a thing I feel, I feel men do in general, but I've actually noticed it among like water sign men, particularly Pisces men, where it's like, they will create a situation in their head that isn't real, you know, like, and hell, we've all done that. We're all guilty of it, but I feel like there's a sect of people out there that will take it into real life. Like he'll be like, oh, there's chemistry between us. There's, you know, the way she let me use her bathroom was kind of flirtatious. You know what I mean? And like, he'll show up legitimately thinking that there is a sexual or romantic attraction here and then be angry that she's not seeing it all caught up in his feelings with that moon interaction he's having because he legitimately feels that she like let him on or was flirting with him or teasing him or whatever. That is such a great point because Pisces, first of all, we've got two things here, right? We've got, we've got a Pisces sun and we've got Neptune 
over here conjunct Jupiter opposed by the south node. So Neptune is the ruler of Pisces. So the Piscean um, energy here is really strong. Pisces is of all the signs is the one most prone to fantasy. And I think the scenario you're presenting is absolutely fucking possible that he, he got into this fantasy about like, well, my wife doesn't want me in this one, but you know, I felt this energy and like he gets all in his, I mean, this is con conjecture obviously, yeah. but when you have Jupiter conjunct Neptune, you, you're not just deceiving others, or I should say, there's not just the danger of deceiving others. There's also the danger of deceiving yourself with mm. the fantasies, mm -hmm. with those illusions. So I think that's like such a good fucking point that absolutely could have been how all of this happened. So let me go back to this Jupiter, North Node, Neptune conjunction. Just so we all are on the same page, I want to let you know that this is happening in Scorpio. <laughs> this. What's happening in Scorpio? This conjunction, Jupiter, oh. North Node, Neptune. Oh, God. It's happening oh, in Scorpio. No. Oh, no. Yes. No. Which is, and to your point, this is the sign whose shadow is all about vengeance and rage and uh death and death, death the death rebirth right yeah. that's also scorpio so this this deception energy deception of self deception of others is happening in this really like uh vengeful potentially when it's low vibration mm -hmm. vengeful sign here's the last thing in this chart i want to talk about before i shift to something else uranus is opposing chiron in his chart Ugh. Oh, it's so not good. <laughs> and it's also, it's also fucking opposing Venus. So here's the deal. Venus is at one degree of Aquarius and Chiron is at 18 degrees of Aquarius. So they share a sign, but they're not really conjunct, right? However, Uranus is at eight degrees of Leo, right? So it effectively opposes both of them. But th even though they're not conjunct, does that make sense? Because it's kind of in, in between. Mm-hmm. We saw Chiron in Aquarius with Yolanda Salibar. This is the wound of feeling like you don't belong to society, to a community, to family, whatever that looks like. But it's basically the wound of not belonging to the group, right? Mm -hmm. Which I, this is why when you were talking, I didn't know that thing about his wife basically leaving him that night. But that is the wound of Aquarius being exiled from the group. Oh, the I was going to ask if there was Aquarius somewhere. That makes sense that it's this Chiron. Yeah. Yes. Um, it's that like being isolated from others. We already saw with his hard Mercury aspects that like that, that whole thing around isolation and not really being able to connect to others. And this just makes it really clear. Deuter did not fit in in some way. And I think he probably uh, experienced that as a kid which is why it became a wound, like such a sensitive wound for him in adulthood. But also I just want to say from, if you zoom out the one group he found consistent belonging with the military basically was like, Hey, we love you. Come back. Psych. You're arrested. We hate you. Right. So that's for sure. Rejection from the group, but also he's on death row for murdering women and children. So, you know, people fucking hate him anyway. V Let's start with Venus and Aquarius, because this is a really tough Venus placement. This makes someone really detached in matters of the heart. Aquarius is an intellectual sign and doesn't really get intimacy without help from other signs, which, by the way, I think 
sets him up to be um, good in the military. I'll just say that, mm. right? Because your heart is kind yeah. of detached, mm. yeah. right? I mean, but that's a nice way of saying good at being able to kill people and not being bad about it. That is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, it's hard to find intimacy with that placement. I'll say that. And the ability to be loving in your relationships uh, is at a detriment, right? Since Venus rules the feminine, it also means that there can be this emotional detachment that happens in your relationship to women. I like to call it misogyny. Hmm. But beyond that, we've got your, and by the way, I'm not saying if you have Venus and Aquarius, that is how that will express itself. We are always saying, referring to unhealed energy. <laughs> and I'm also saying it is one way that it can express itself. And yes, certainly if you're unhealed. But beyond that, we've got Uranus way over there in Leo, opposing not just Venus, but also Chiron. Uranus can have a super destabilizing impact on a chart. We talk about it all the time. When it's in hard aspect, which an opposition is, it can bring volatility and erratic behavior. So we have volatile, erratic energy that is opposing women, a.k.a. Venus. And then we also have volatile, erratic energy that happens when the Chiron wound of rejection from the group is triggered, right? So in other words, if he feels rejected or gets that painful feeling of not being wanted, he becomes volatile. And that's more the case when you have those narcissistic tendencies that prevent a person from being like, you know, everything's about me and what I want. Right. So we have this opposition, Uranus at eight degrees of Leo, Venus at one degree of Aquarius. They're forming a grand cross with our other big opposition, South Node and Moon opposite Jupiter, North Node, Neptune. So, you know, in the words of the dude, this is a bummer, man. Mm. That's a bummer. It does not pull the room together. No, it does not. <laughs> this rug does not, not pull the room together. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so a grand cross. That's when you have four points in a chart that make a square, right? Like each point is 90 degrees from the point. Yeah, we've next. seen these before. We've seen these before. Yeah. So basically it forms a big square and that square tells us about the huge struggle this person will face. They won't be able to overcome this adversity unless they really apply themselves to growth and healing, especially when Chiron is a part of the Grand Cross, which it is in this case, right? Otherwise, you'll be trapped in the circumstances that you yourself have created. Literally trapped in jail. <laughs> right. And that's pretty much exactly what's happened here. That's what I was going to say. Ultimately, he wasn't able to escape his karma because his Grand Cross is like, you didn't do the work, bro. You can't get out of this. Now... Let's look at the astrology of the day of the murder and see how it was impacting his chart since I know there are questions about whether or not he did it, right? For one thing, are there? Pluto, well, not for us, but whatever, you know, there's someone out there who's who's like writing to him in jail and being like, I know you're innocent. Someone out there furiously typing. It's just like, the thing is, women are sluts. And yeah, probably, totally. yeah, right, yeah. So, for one thing, Pluto on that day was conjunct that crazy Scorpio conjunction, Jupiter, North Node, Neptune. Pluto on that day was at two degrees of Scorpio, and he's got Jupiter at one degree of Scorpio, North Node at two degrees Scorpio, and Neptune at four degrees Scorpio. Like, so it is sitting on all of those, Pluto. 
<laughs> like, mm. I don't know if you guys understand Pluto. It is not to be trifled with. It is not fucking around. So truly, I cannot think of a worse way to set off this conjunction than by fucking adding Pluto to it. Then the moon on that day, which by the way, the moon changes signs like every two and a half days, right? So the moon on that day, right at the time of the murders, because I put in like around midnight, which is when they think it happened, right at the time of the murders, moved into Aquarius and was passing right over his Venus. That's emotions and subconscious impulses, the moon toward women, Venus, right? He's, he's rageful towards women. He just got left by his wife and had his like sexual advances get shit on by his ex, right? He's pissed off at women. And that is showing up. We've got subconscious impulses toward women, right? Venus. And that little conjunction, okay, moon, Venus is squaring the Scorpio conjunctions. So now Pluto, Neptune, Jupiter, and his North Node are all squaring that Moon-Venus conjunction. And as all this is happening, Jupiter on that day was conjunct his Chiron in Aquarius. It was only three degrees from his Chiron, making his rejection wound real big. Oh, yeah. Rip that shit open. Very big indeed. Yeah. And that is the astrology of Timothy Hennis. You know what I couldn't help thinking about when I was writing this up because i was like okay well we found i mean it's 1.2 i was like there's no way he's gonna say he he didn't have sex with her at least right i mean i was when i when i was reading this i was like oh he's gonna say it was consensual got it this is what did he do with his daughter while he's raping and killing what did he do with his 18 month old daughter you think he just brought like put her on the couch wait i thought his wife no left Oh, she left the baby with him? Uh-huh. So, I mean, that means he took his daughter to this other girl's house being like, hey, can I get some? And I guess my daughter's just going to chill and watch TV. I mean, I've had an 18-month-old. They walk. They, you know, they're eating solid food. Like, they, they're small people at that point. They're not infants, you know? I mean, they're they're babies. They're still under two. But they they're, they have to be dealt with. Wow, that is such a good question. I would well, love to know. Well, we could ask the girlfriend, the ex-girlfriend. I mean, we can't ask anyone, yeah. but like that is someone could have. I would love to. I mean, like he clearly showed up to the I I would put money that he showed up to the ex-girlfriend's house with the child. But I I want to know. I mean, by his own admission, he had he had sex with with Katie Eastburn. He's saying it was consensual. Um okay baby what where was the baby during this time period if it's that if it was that night and then the the murders happened later you know if it's just a big coinky dink that you had you happened to sleep with her that night and then which is not what he's saying but he couldn't have been saying that i don't think he could have been saying that he slept with her i don't know i'd have to look more into it but if he's saying he slept with her honestly if he's actually legitimately with a straight face saying that he showed up to look at this dog and somehow this you know casual 10 minute first meet encounter ended up with sex that's ridiculous to me but Just- i but you made such a good point that is i mean look at every single porn all of these you know especially 80s porn 70s oh God, porn so it's bad. all Piece of so, delivery men. 
and plumbers yeah. and whoever like and the wife can't pay the bill yeah you know, right, it, yeah it, it's like there's this uh um, i'll take this dog off your hands but you've got to do me a favor first you know something like that right it's that my my i guess my point is that all of that comes from the male psyche mm-hmm. right women were not writing no. these fucking stories no in in the in the uh archetype of the male sexual psyche these are scenarios that they think of that they're are like hot and that makes sense to them and that's because god that's embarrassing for them (laughs) yeah because in no way are they incorporating the fact that like women need to feel safe to fuck yeah and like the fucking plumber who just shows up no that's you know it's not no no it's just like not hot to us i just like i i i just have questions like i know she had three kids home there's no fucking way that she was like hey just want to come into my back room and we can like maybe get busy for like that didn't happen no that absolutely didn't happen i can't imagine a scenario wherein it would happen because again she's home with three young children but if 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 he is claiming that it happened that like and i'd i'd have to go i'd have to do more information i'd have to look for more information i just don't know but if for example, his thing was, hey, that night they did see me because I showed up at her house and we had sex and then I left. And I'm like, where was your 18 month old? What did you do with your 18 month old? I, This is a detail that I feel can't be overlooked. Did you just she leave was- her at home by herself? Like, did you just tuck her in or like give her some Benadryl or some shit and be like, you'll sleep through the night and then leave? Just put some whiskey in the bottle. Like I know that parenting was rough in the eighties. I know, like remember in then in the early nineties they put out that ad that was like it's ten p.m. Do you know where your kids are? Because legitimately, a lot of parents <laughs> did not know where their kids were at ten p.m. You know, uh... like that's where we were at. So I, I, I just I and I didn't see it brought up anywhere. And I really just want to know. Okay, all right. So if you're saying that you did show up to have sex with this one that. I mean, there's no, I just, it it doesn't, it doesn't make sense, but I mean, but I mean, it it only, on so many levels, it doesn't make sense. And it just speaks to the fact that like this dude is fucking, he's not, he's not a solid dude. What do you think his rising sign is? Oh, that's a really good question. Cause Um, my bet is Leo. Yeah, I mean, he already has a lot of narcissism in there, so he doesn't need a Leo rising, but he totally could. I mean, I can, that- yeah, but I'm just saying that that would really an unhealed Leo rising, whew, or whew. even even an Aries rising. No, yeah, I put the, the anger, uh, yeah, because the Pisces with the Aries, like the I'm deceptive and I'm I'm suave, I'm like I'm a shapeshifter, but if you set me off. Yeah. That's one thing about Aries rising is like, woo, when you set off an Aries rising. Girl, don't I know it. Jude's an Aries or, rising. Yes. Or even a Scorpio rising. Oh, could That's be. A, could be. Because yeah. you imagine if, because you, if, if he showed up and in his head, he was like, this is a romantic encounter. We really hit it off. I'm going to show up. It's going to be romantic. And it's going to be, you know, it's going to be, or not even that. It's going to be hot. She's going to be into it. And instead she was like, what the fuck? What the fuck are you doing here? You know, or even was just like confused, like, is something wrong with the dog? Like in no way was interested in him. I can see him either being angry, if like an Aries rising, super angry, a Leo rising, Mm -hmm. super like insulted, a Scorpio rising, you know, 
vengeful although scorpio risings are a little more introverted one thing i'll say is i think he was drunk i think i don't think he was that's a good point yeah yeah so i think i think that had a lot to do with it also yeah i can see that Ugh, i need to get drunk after this fucking story i know right I the only thing that I mean I really love that they were like no we're gonna get you <laughs> like we're gonna figure out a way to get you well I love that that is one beautiful thing about his grand cross is that like you haven't worked on yourself sir so you don't get a get out of jail free card on this one <laughs> we won't be doing it this time yeah you're just gonna be locked into this sorry about that <laughs> yeah bish yeah fuck that enjoy jail <laughs> Yeah. You'll have lots of willing partners there. I'm going to go uh, enjoy a toddy. Speaking Ooh, of enjoy. That sounds nice. Yeah, because it's cold. Yeah, it's real yeah. cold here too. But at least it's sunny. It's been no, so it's gray. Not, it's sunny it's here. It's not. Tonight. It's not sunny here. So. I'm so sorry. Thanks. All right. Enjoy your toddy. Don't let your cat hurt you anymore. Thank you. Yeah. Or pee on anything. Or pee on anything. Jalapeno. 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 <laughs> Jalapeno, because we got to, what'd you say, the tilde? The tilde. You got to get that tilde in there. Jalapeno. No. No. Okay. Love you. Love you too. Bye. Bye. Bye.